Well, it's my uh, privilege now to introduce uh, Bill Mills for some of you. Uh, he needs no introduction. He's been a longstanding missionary that we've supported here with LRI, Leadership Resources International. And I so appreciate Bill and his ministry because it's a missions model that is unique, but it is uniquely biblical in the sense that he is, has been part of that ministry, really founding that ministry, co-founding it 41 years ago. And it is launching out of uh, Chicago. He's from the western, southwestern part of the suburbs of Chicago. And that ministry launches um, ministry for pastors to go into regions around the world um, and going into the living room settings where you have pastors who are traveling maybe two and three days to be equipped on how to better handle the word of God. And so he's, a, he's using men who, um, from America who are equipped in the word of God to go and equip others on the scene, so on the job training there where pastors can deepen and can grow in how they handle the text. And it sounds very similar to 2 Timothy 2 too, doesn't it? Paul commissioning Timothy to go and, and equip other godly men so that they will be able to equip others also. It's the invisible advancement of the kingdom of God. It's a great commission. So we have a warrior in prayer and a man of God who has fought the good fight of faith, and he's going to come preach to us. Let me tell you a little bit about him for those of you who are being introduced to Bill. I was recently introduced to him and have had a couple lunchtimes with him, and he would not necessarily appreciate me talking about this, but he is one of those men that you encounter um, from time to time as a spiritual leader and a godly man who makes you want to worship more, worship Jesus more, just by being around him. He's got a glowing countenance where he's, he radiates a love for Jesus Christ and a passion for him and missions. And so I'm so privileged to have him come and preach to us. He, uh, his wife, uh, Karen, who's actually ailing with shingles right now, we need to be in prayer for her. She is home in Chicago, and they also have two sons, um, Joel and Peter, and they are known for fishing together and enjoy um, that kind of activity. But let's now give Bill a warm greeting from Anchorage Grace Church right now as he comes to the pulpit. Thank you, Pastor Jeff. You are so gracious. And I'm grateful for the privilege of being with you. Uh, it's exciting for me to always be at Anchorage Grace because of what I receive in the love that you give, the warmth of the fellowship, but most of all, your desire to exalt Jesus, not only here among you, but throughout the world. Thank you for uh, your love and uh, commitment to Karen and me and to the ministry that uh, we share together. You have been so faithful in your giving and your encouragement and your prayers. Thank you, thank you. And I am looking forward to this day with you. Uh, I, I want to mention that the first two messages in this series I may have preached here before, and I do not have a good record of what I preach in churches when I'm, uh, when I'm visiting, but, uh, you know, uh, if a pastor thinks that people remember for more than two days anything they say, they're probably seeing themselves out of proportion, but if something does strike you, that uh, you think I may have said before, uh, 
I wanted to put these messages in the series together today that we will share. And uh, so uh, this morning we're going to talk about the power of worship in spiritual warfare. The first message this afternoon will be by way of personal testimony, as well as study in the Word, how God creates a heart of worship within us as we look at the problem of mercy. And then the last session will be a Psalm of Asaph, where he gives testimony to how God enabled him to worship even in the day of trouble. And I believe that will be a very strong encouragement to you. And then we are going to close our time by sharing worship together as we bring scriptures and songs and prayers of thanksgivings and encouragements to one another. So we'll very much look forward to this day with you. I do want to briefly mention the book table. I I don't do it because it's most important to me, but uh, I, I don't want to mention it at the end. And I want to tell you a little bit about it. Uh, We are a mission organization. We have training teams, about 25 of them, throughout Asia, the South Pacific, Africa, Latin America, and the former Soviet Union. Our passion is the promise of the prophet Habakkuk, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So there are some materials on the table focused on missions and evangelism, Marnie Carlson on our staff wrote in our booklet series, The Harvest is Ripe, Sharing the Father's Heart for Lost People. She also wrote another booklet on the table, uh, The Way to Heaven, A Daughter's Letter to Her Dad. It's a great tool for sharing the gospel. I think there's only one copy there, but you can pick that up. Craig Perrow, whom you know, our president, wrote a lasting legacy, investing our lives in people. And this is about Barnabas. And then uh, this tool, which is uh, a very uh, strong prayer tool to disciple your children, not only in prayer but in missions. It's titled Operation World. There's been a whole series of these editions. This is the latest one. But you can actually look up any country in the world and learn more about how to pray for the believers in that place. Information about the church, what their challenges are, how you can participate in what God's doing there. So take a look at that. Uh, There are CDs of the three messages in this series in the center of the table. The other CDs are the Bible conferences that we bring to churches. In the booklet series, this message is printed up in a similar form titled, The Battle is the Lord's Praise, Worship, and Spiritual Warfare. Now, uh, everything on the book table is there on an offering basis. Nobody is going to be selling stuff to you. So uh, take what you'd like, put in what you can, and make use of it. And then turn with me in your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 20. Psalms is right about in the middle of our Bibles. To the left of Psalms is a series of historical books. You have First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and then Second First and Second Chronicles. We're going to be in chapter twenty, and I want to ask you as you turn to this text if you have a strategy for spiritual warfare. 
a plan for when your enemies come upon you seeking your destruction. When Satan comes at you, perhaps a frontal attack may be blindsiding you in an unexpected way, may be coming at you like a dog nipping at your heels, just trying to wear you down till you lose heart and give up and walk away from the Lord. Perhaps when you face terrible sickness or financial pressures or confusion, uh, when uh, there are conflicts in your marriage or family or ministry, do you have a strategy for when your enemies come? I want to suggest for you this morning a strategy for spiritual warfare from this great scripture in the Word of God. Now, as we come to Second Chronicles 20, the wicked king Ahab of Israel has just been killed in battle. And King Jehoshaphat of Judah has just appointed some of the Levite priests and heads of the Israelite families to administer the law of the Lord. So begin with me in verse 1 of Second Chronicles chapter 20. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Meonites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazon Tamer, that is, En Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So when King Jehoshaphat learned that several of the armies of his enemies had gathered together and were descending upon Judah, seeking Jerusalem's destruction, there was some very real fear that gripped his heart. And fear is a very honest and real response in times of danger, when we're facing terrible enemies, when we look before us and perhaps all we can see is hopelessness and destruction. Fear is very real, and it was for Jehoshaphat. But in his fears... He called his own heart and his people to seek the Lord. Verse 4, And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord from all the cities of Judah. They came to seek the Lord. So following the example of their king, the nation began to gather together to seek their God in the midst of this great crisis. Verse 5, And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem, in the house of the Lord before the new court, and said, Now I want you to visualize the scene as we walk through this text. This is a vivid portion of God's word. We can see the enemies coming, the armies marching toward Judah. And we can see the people of God beginning to gather together in their fear, but in their hope for their God as well. And now King Jehoshaphat will stand before his people. What will he do? What will he say when they are so afraid, when they're overwhelmed, and when they are threatened with destruction? Will he give them a political speech? Will he seek to rally them by means of the flesh? No, amazing. He begins to lead his nation in prayer. Verse 6, he said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? 
You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Isn't that a wonderful reminder when the enemies are on their way and we are being threatened with destruction? We have a God who is in heaven and he is ruling. Look how he continues. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. There is no political system in this world. There is no army. There is no demon from hell. Even Satan himself cannot stand before our Lord God. Verse 7, did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before uh, your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. The time to lay out our strategies for the battles we will face is not when the enemies are at the door. Long before the coalition of these armies began to descend upon Judah, God's people had purposed in their hearts. If calamity ever comes upon us, whether it's the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will gather together before this temple that bears God's name and we will cry out to him in our distress. I urge you, to lay out your strategy, make your plans to seek God when you are threatened by terrible enemies. We lose our bearings often in the midst of warfare. It's hard to know which way's up and which way's down and how to go and what's right and what's wrong. We have to make our plans before the enemies are there. That's what God's people did. Verse, verse 10. And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Monsir, whom you had not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given to us to inherit. This is an interesting part of Jehoshaphat's prayer. He's reminding God of his history with his people. And he says, God, when we came into the promised land, there were actually territories that you did not allow us to invade and peoples you did not permit us to destroy. Now look at how they're repaying us. They're coming to destroy us. And so he says, in verse 12, Our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Can you imagine one of our presidents praying a prayer remotely resembling what we hear from King Jehoshaphat that day? What humility, what confession of weakness as this king stands before his people. He doesn't say to his nation, no worries. We, we've actually prepared for days like this. We've got resources. We'll handle this. Go home. He says, we have no power with which to face an enemy like this. 
and I have absolutely no idea what to do right now, we need to look to God. Hmm. Let me ask you, husbands and fathers, let me ask you, church leaders, when was the last time you said anything like this to your wife, your children, or your people? When was the last time you faced something bigger than you were? And you said to your wife and children and your people, I'm not smart enough to figure this one out. I'm not strong enough to get us through this. I'm not sufficient enough as a leader to bring us where we need to go. We, we have, I, I don't know what to do. I'm confused. We need to look to God. Or, or do you listen to the voices of our culture, amplified by the voice of the enemy, when he says, you could never do that? If your wife knew how weak you are, if she knew the kinds of things you think about, the things you struggle with, how small you really feel inside, if your children knew that you were not adequate to take them from here to where we need to go, if your people knew that you're just like them, you're very small, you're afraid, you're very weak, you don't have all the answers, do you think your wife, your children, your people would respect you? Would they follow your leadership? What they need right now is for you to project an image of strength and sufficiency. You need to make it look like you are able, capable, so that they will not lose heart. No matter what's going on inside, you need to project an image of strength. Jehoshaphat didn't feel the need to do that. In the grace of God, he was able to confess before his nation how small and weak and afraid he was and even how confused he was. But the place of confession, of weakness, of humility and brokenness is the place where the victories begin. Remember how Jesus said to his disciples, apart from me you can do nothing? just before he went to the cross. What does he mean by that? Does Jesus mean, apart from me, you cannot achieve the righteousness that a holy God is demanding in your life? Does he mean, apart from me, you cannot live the kind of life in this world, a life of holiness that God requires? Does it mean apart from me you can't love your wife with the heart of the Lord Jesus? Or your husband reflecting the Spirit of God? Or your brothers and sisters with serving and giving? Apart from me you can't do that? Does it mean apart from me you can't get up in the morning and go to work each day? Or to school? Do your job? Does it mean apart from me when you come home from work or school... You can't cook supper. You can't shovel the snow. How far does this go? Where is the dividing line between the things that we cannot do without God's help and the things that we can handle pretty well on our own? There's no dividing line, is there? 
Even for the person who curses God, we take every breath only as a result of his grace. And Jesus is taking an axe to our pride and cutting out any root of confidence in who we are and what we are able to do. And he makes it abundantly clear, apart from him, we have no hope, we have no power, we have no resources, there's absolutely nothing we can do. And of course, Jesus is drawing us to himself with the humility that confesses with him what he's saying so that he will become the life source within us, not only our redeemer from sin, not only our hope for heaven, but the very power and life source which will be sufficient in us to enable us to do all that the Father asks us to do in the power of the Christ who lives within us, Christ in you, the hope of glory. But we don't come to that place if we live with the images that we feel we need to project of strength and confidence and sufficiency only in personal brokenness and humility do the victories begin. And we see that with King Jehoshaphat this day. Well, verse 13, Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. Remember how God said through the prophet Isaiah, those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not become weary. They will walk and not faint. And we can see it. We can see it. The whole nation of Judah gathered before this temple that bears God's name, and they are waiting upon the Lord. Verse 14, And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. So now the Spirit of God comes upon this young man, Jehaziel, and he will begin to prophesy before God's people. Verse 15, and he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. I read that and I remember the time that the armies of Israel were camped facing the armies of the Philistines. And the Philistines had a great warrior, a champion, a giant named Goliath. Day after day, Goliath would come out and he would stand before the armies of Israel and he would issue this challenge. It makes no sense for our two armies to fight and destroy one another. Why don't you choose a champion? You send him out, he and I will do battle with one another, and if he wins, we will all be your slaves. But if I win, you will all be our slaves. Day after day, that challenge went forth. King Saul actually stood head and shoulders above every man in Israel, but he trembled in the face of that giant. All of Saul's great warriors in his army were filled with fear before that enemy. But one day, a young shepherd boy whose name was David came upon the scene just as Goliath was issuing that challenge. David wasn't in the army. He was only there to bring provisions for his brothers who were in the army. He was too young to fight in the battle. 
And, and as he listened to the challenge, he said, how can we allow this uncircumcised Philistine to taunt the armies of the living God like this? I'll do battle with Goliath. Well, maybe you remember Saul's response. Here, David, I'll give you my armor. Maybe you remember what David's brother said. David, go home and take care of that handful of sheep that belongs to you. We'll take care of the battle. But David went down to the brook, and he picked up those five smooth stones. And as he ran out to meet Goliath, he said two things of overwhelming significance. He said, this day I will give your flesh and the flesh of the armies of the Philistines to the birds of the sky and to the beasts of the field, in order that all the world might know that there is a God in Israel. What motivated David as he entered that battle with Goliath? Nothing less than the glory of his God. That's what moved him to fight Goliath. And then as he ran to meet the giant, he said, the battle is the Lord's. And it was that understanding that separated David from King Saul and all of Saul's great warriors, they thought it was their battle. And they looked at Goliath and they said, that giant is so big, there is no way we could ever win this battle. But David's eyes were on his God. And he said, our God is so great, there is no way we can lose this battle. The battles that are taking place right now in our minds and in our hearts in our marriages and our families and our ministries, the battles are the Lord's, and he is our great warrior. He is all of our hope. Verse 16, or where are we? 16. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You'll find them at the end of the valley east of the wilderness of Jerel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Can you imagine more encouraging words for an army to hear that day? There is a coalition of the armies of their enemies descending upon them. They are far outnumbered, outpowered. They're overwhelmed. They're threatened with destruction. They feel hopeless. And yet here's the word of the Lord. You will not have to fight in this Can you picture the cancer patient sitting in the doctor's office? There's been sickness and weakness for many weeks. The x-rays are finished, the tests are completed, and the doctor comes into her office and says, I have terrible news. It's inoperable, it's untreatable, it's terminal. Can you imagine more encouraging words to hear? You will not need to fight in this battle. Can you picture the marriage partner standing in the bedroom? There's been coldness in the relationship for months. And then the other partner comes in and says, I, I found someone else. I'm leaving. Can you picture the parents who desire nothing more than for their children to live for the glory of God? And yet they're watching as the hearts of their children seem to be stolen away more every day by the materialism, the opportunities, the lifestyle of this system, and their hearts are breaking. 
Can you picture the pastors who so desire for their people to be raised up of God, to invade the darkness around them, tear down the strongholds of the enemy, walk with God in building a kingdom that will never pass away, and yet every time they come to the monthly board meeting, they're confronted only with a commitment to maintain the status quo, no vision for missions, no heart for evangelism, Gossiping, backbiting, and divisions among the people, their hearts are breaking. Can you imagine more encouraging words for those people to hear? You will not need to fight in this battle. We have a great warrior, a champion. The battles are the Lord's. He empowers us. He brings the victories. He calls us to walk with him in them. And we rest in the battles. Where are we? Still in verse 17, you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. His presence is our peace. And this is one of the great themes of our Bibles from the beginning to the end. There's this amazing assumption on the part of our Lord God that his presence changes everything. And so when he says to his people, I am with you, he he just takes for granted that will bring rest to our souls and enable us, set us free to walk with him in the victory that he's providing Well, verse 18. Well, let's go back. Verse 17. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation. See the relationship between standing firm, holding our position, and watching the deliverance of our God. We are resting in him. He is at work. He is bringing the victory. Now, think of this correlated to Ephesians and chapter 6. Stand firm, hold your positions. (coughs) Excuse me. What is our position in spiritual warfare? As Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, he helps us understand it, right? He says our battle is not against flesh and blood. Satan would love to convince us our battles are are against flesh and blood. They're against one another. Now, if it's true that our battles are against one another, against flesh and blood, then the resources that come from us would be sufficient to bring the victory. Then our brilliance, our persuasiveness, the strength of our personality, our ability to call people or move people or protect them, it'd be sufficient then it really would be my mind against your mind if I can just convince you that this is true, I can bring you to salvation or I can bring you to the place to trust in the Lord. If my strength was really the issue, then if I could just move you in this direction or keep you from doing this or that, the the battle would be won. But, But it's not true. Our battles are not against flesh and blood. They're against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. 
The real battles are not even going on in the realms of time and space. They're taking place in the heavenlies. So what resources do we bring to the battles going on in the heavenlies? Would our brilliance, our personality, our strength, our eloquence, do those make any difference in the heavenlies? Of course not. So Paul says, therefore, take up the full armor of God and stand. Stand firm. Of course, the enemy is screaming in our ears. Say something. Do something. Figure it out. Work it out. Gut it out. Make it happen. This all depends on you. How strong you are. How smart you are. How well you perform in this situation. God is saying, stand. That's our position in spiritual warfare. To stand firm in the greatness of our God. Stand firm. Do do you realize what a promise this is for God's children? What what a promise for, for parents and what a promise for church leaders. This is a scary world. We are facing terrible enemies on every level. This is a place where people seem to get destroyed all around us all the time. And perhaps you've even heard parents or adults say, I wonder if it's even right to bring children into this kind of world. Do you think this world has ever been a safe place to raise children? Of course not. But God is here. And in him, even in this scary, frightening, destructive world, God's people are able to stand and stand firm. Everything's shifting, moving, shaking, threatening around us, and we're able to stand and stand firm in how good and powerful, great is our God. Stand firm, hold your position. The Lord will be with you. Verse 18. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And so the response to Jehaziel's prophecy is the people of God begin to break forth and worship before the Lord. Verse 20, they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe in his prophets and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now here's the heart of the strategy. Built on the prayer and the humility, the confession of weakness, the place of brokenness, here is the strategy. Before the soldiers would go the worshipers. The army, the soldiers would be led into battle that day by those who are lifting God high in his holiness, exalting him in his glory, and pouring out thanksgivings before him. That is a beautiful picture of the power and the gift of the worship team. The worship team leads the soldiers into battle. 
And the song of the worship team is the song of the angels around God's throne. How do we know that? Because Isaiah gives us the scene as he describes his call to the ministry. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated on the throne, and the angels around God's throne are continually proclaiming, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The purity of God, his separation from everything evil, lifted high, uniquely above, separated from everything else. The radiance of his person, the beauty of his presence. That's the song of the angels. It was the song of the worship team. And then... They're proclaiming the goodness of their God. They're giving thanks to the Lord. Now, remember, the battle hadn't been won yet. In fact, the battle hadn't even yet been fought. And they're thanking God for his goodness and his faithful love. Satan wants us to be so aware of all of the pressure and the pain, all the loss, everything we do not have, everything that God's not doing. He does not want us to understand that even in the darkest days of our lives, in the midst of the most pressure and pain we've ever known, God has not changed. He is good. He is good. And his faithful love endures forever. And worship, it involves not only the exaltation of our God in his holiness, proclaiming his glory, but thanking him for his goodness. There is cleansing, there is freedom, there is great power in a thankful heart. And if you in your marriage are struggling with attitudes toward your life partner, toward your parents, to your children, or even in the body, if, if there are attitudes that, that are not Christ-like, If you're struggling in relationships, one of the most powerful things you can do is get on your face before the Lord and start listing out every reason to give thanks to God for that person. God, what a gift you've given to me in my husband, my wife, my parents, my children. How you have loved me in bringing that brother and sister to me. You are so good, Lord. You are so good. Thank you, Lord. There is cleansing and there is healing, great power in a heart of thanksgiving. Well, look what happens in verse 22. When they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end to the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. Now again, visualize the scene. See the worship team leading the army into battle. Hear what they're proclaiming. God, you are holy. You are glorious. You are good. And what's happening among their enemies? The enemies are fighting with each other. They're destroying each other. And then who is ever left? They're destroying themselves. This is spiritual warfare. This is the power of worship seen. Now, as we're standing in worship this morning, and the worship team was leading us, if God would have given us the eyes to see it, what would we have seen? 
We would have seen the demons of hell fleeing this room. We would have seen the angels of God coming and filling this place. Satan cannot stand where our God is lifted high in worship. I encourage you to do this. In the battles you face from day to day, make worship your strategy. Don't make believe things about yourself that aren't true. You are not very big. You are not very smart. You are not very strong. You are not very spiritual. Admit it. Don't make believe. But there's hope in this message. What is it? It's okay to be very small in the face of terrible enemies if we have a very big God. Our hope is not in who we are and what we're able to do. Our hope is in the greatness of our Lord and the power that we experience together as we lift him high in worship. We'll look down to verse 27. Then they returned, every man of Judah and Jerusalem, at Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. They came to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets to the house of the Lord. You know, we can hear, we can hear the conversations from their enemies, that coalition of the armies, as they're descending upon Judah. This is a very small army. This is a very weak enemy. The battle will be very short. Before long, we'll be enjoying the spoils of victory. When the battle was over, God had given his people the cause to rejoice over their enemies. And they worshiped not only before the battle, they worshiped during the battle, and they worshiped when the battle had been won, because they knew only God had given them this great victory. And then look, verse 29, the fear of God came on all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. The glory of God is at stake in the way we walk through the battles of our lives. If we really are smart enough and strong enough, spiritual enough, anything enough, to bring ourselves the victories, who gets the glory? Do you really want the people you live with in your larger family, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, to look at you and say, boy, that guy sure has his stuff together. Everything he touches turns to gold. Look at how organized that woman's family is. Look how they function. Look at their relationships. Look at the success of the children. Do we really want people to look at us and affirm us? But when we're quick to talk about how weak and small we are, but how beautiful and glorious is our God, we can point people to him. We want the fear of God to come upon our larger family, our co-workers, our neighbors, and our friends, because our eyes are on the throne room. We want them to be with us there in heaven, worshiping our great God forever and ever. The only way that's going to happen, if God would use us in the process, is to confess how small we are and point them to the greatness of our God. We don't want them to worship us. We want them to worship him. Look at verse 30. So the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for as God gave him rest all around. When God's people humbled themselves before him, and they exalted their God, confessing their weakness, God not only brought them this great victory, he gave them peace 
and rest. God's people, we are so in need of peace and rest in these days. You know, the truth is every battle that we've touched on this morning and many more are being fought right now by people in this very room. Some of us are facing personal temptations, temptations that are bigger than we are. We're not doing well with them. Some of us are afraid at the circumstances and life situations we face. Some of us are facing terrible financial pressures. Some of us are confused about the the future. Some of us experiencing sickness or grief or loss. We're in terrible battles. Only when we lift God high and confess how small we are, when we worship him, do we experience the victory and the peace and the rest. Isn't rest a wonderful thing? God gives his children rest. Anybody else talking to you about rest in these days? Who who talks about rest? Does your boss at work talk about rest? Does your teacher at school give you rest? No. Everywhere, there's the pressure to perform, to to succeed. Our circumstances don't give us rest. They overwhelm us. No rest. What happens when we turn on the news or read the newspaper? It's about unrest. Everywhere, there's unrest. Who talks about rest? One person talks about rest, our God. It's one of the most wonderful themes of the Bible and one of the most beautiful gifts God gives to us as his children. Gives us rest. You remember when you read Genesis 1? Several key repetitions, aren't there? God spoke his eternal word, and life sprang forth. Another repetition. It's good. It's good. It's very good. Another repetition. Evening, morning, first day. Evening, morning, second day. Evening, morning. Every day. Until day seven, right? No end of the seventh day because we are living in the seventh day of creation. And what is the seventh day about? It's about the rest of our God. And he didn't rest, of course, because he was tired. The writer of the Hebrews makes it clear. He rested because he was finished with his work. And then the writer calls us in to enter into God's rest by ceasing from all of our own works. Now God is at work in us, and we can rest in the greatness of who he is. And you remember one of the most beautiful invitations of the Lord Jesus in the Bible. Come to me, you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. I'm gentle and humble in heart. Come to me. I will give you rest. So much of spiritual warfare from our terrible enemy is stealing away from us the rest that God gives us in his son by convincing us it's all about us. Life, relationships, work, 
ministry. It's all about us. It all depends on how well we perform, how well we produce. Depends on us. Stealing away rest. What happened to the people of God when they were surrounded and threatened by terrible enemies? Apart from God's intervention, they would have been destroyed. Fear would have controlled them. But as they saw themselves through the eyes of God, confessed that he was right about how small and weak they were, and began to lift him high, God gave them an incredible victory and brought them peace and rest. You know, the people that we read about here in 2 Chronicles 20 were walking with God toward a great victory, weren't they? As they put their hopes in him. We are not a people walking toward victory. We are a people walking from victory. All the victories of our lives have already been won in the cross of Calvary. There are no more victories for us to win. They've been won. We're called to walk with God in those victories. And you remember how Paul described that to the church at Colossae, where in the cross, Jesus not only defeated Satan, but made a public display of it all. And then he rose from the dead sealing the victory, and the promise of Christ in us, the hope of glory, enables us to walk with him in the victories he's provided. We cannot worship if we cannot rest. Because in the striving and the fear and the pressure, when it's all about us, that's what we need to be about. Only when we worship and rest and worship in the greatness of our God, are we free to lift him high and exalt him and experience the victories of the cross. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the greatness of who you are. Thank you that you are the